Hear now the word of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that. Our Father in heaven, we need you, along with your Son, to send the Spirit to help us this morning, to illuminate the Bible, to take these words that are here and that are read and that are preached, and we ask you to send your Spirit to bring life to them, to take our lifeless hearts and give us faith. Would you help us in our need this morning so that these are more than words, but even life itself to us? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I know that many of you did live through the musical Dark Ages, uh, the 90s. And uh, if you're like me, you, you listen to a lot of music in the 90s, you listen to whatever was on the radio, one of the catchiest songs on the radio. And uh, I, I suppose most frustrating pop songs ever, too, is... Uh, ironic by Alanis Morissette. And uh, the reason I always found it so ironic was that the song is not very ironic. Like the songs, the things that she brings up in the song are all these examples of things that go bad, but they're not really examples of actual irony. Um, and so, you know, it's not a good lesson in irony. If you're wanting to teach an English class and tell students what irony is, you wouldn't play that song for them necessarily. Um, and so irony, what is irony though? Irony is a it's a reversal of our general expectations. If we could be really generic about it, that's what's going on. Uh, when something is ironic, it's a reversal of what we expect. And I can give you some examples. And I want kids to listen in because I'm going to use a Disney movie as an example. All right. So if you've seen Monsters Incorporated, all right, if you're a little kid, you've nod your head. And if you're a parent, you've probably seen it more than they've seen it. Um, but in the movie Monsters Incorporated, one of the ideas for the story is that um, monsters, to generate energy, have to scare children. And the thing that makes the movie ironic is that the monsters are actually deathly afraid of children, and the children aren't really afraid of monsters. So it's a complete reversal of the world that we live in. The, the reality is monsters are scared of you. You don't have to be scared of monsters. Um, that's ironic. Because it's completely unexpected. It's the opposite of, of what we know. Uh, or think of the movie Ratatouille. All right? If you are a parent, you've also um, probably seen that a dozen times or so. And in the movie Ratatouille, there is a rat in the kitchen making the best food. He's like the best cook. And I don't have to tell you why that's ironic. We usually find rats dead in the kitchen. Uh, we usually don't find them in our kitchen cooking things. Uh, or hopefully you don't find any rats in your kitchen. Um, but then there's an, also a serious example, 
and uh, kids will be less excited about this one. But John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And before that happened, though, as the convertible was, uh, was rolling down the road, there was someone in the car named Idanel Connolly. And Idanel Connolly turned to the president as the crowds were cheering. And the irony was rich because of what was about to happen. But Idanel Connolly said, Mr. President, you cannot say that Dallas doesn't love you. And of course, moments later, he was murdered. Someone in Dallas certainly did not love the president. And so what we have in a situation like that, or in the more comical examples of uh, Ratatouille and, and Monsters Incorporated, is this reversal of our expectation of the way that things should go. And, and let me tell you, the Bible is a book that is filled with irony. God is in the irony business. And this morning we see the irony of God. We see the irony of the incarnation hard at work in three different ways. Now, we all have sort of different interests when we come and when we sit down and when we're about to hear a sermon. Uh, You know, maybe you sit down and you think, I hope this sermon is really practical. I hope there's a lot of application today. Or you might have sort of a geeky mindset, not all that different from my own mindset, where you think, I hope there's a bunch of theology in this. You know, I hope I hear something different that I've never heard before or something like that. Um, And I don't know what you're looking for when you come to a sermon. You know, ideally, a sermon is going to have a little bit of both of those things or a lot of both of those things. Um, But today's passage, and you probably noticed it last week and the week before, these are passages that are rich in theology. And uh, all of John's prologue is theology. You know, that the whole Half of the first chapter of John is just John saying, this is what Jesus is like. This is what the word is like. This is what God is like. This is what the Trinity is like. All of these things that, let's just face it, they're not super practical, at least not yet. And so that's what we're hearing over and over again. This is what Jesus is like. And so if you come to a sermon and you're not generally receptive to hearing lots of theology... Um, I would just give you a thought before we go any further this morning, which is this. John thinks this is important. John, the writer of this book who knew Jesus in the flesh, could have started off like Mark and just got to the storytelling right away. But instead for John, it's so important that he spend this first half of his first chapter just focus on the idea of who is Jesus really? And, and, on, and on the one hand, I would say, none of us know what we need more than John knows what we need. And certainly, because God inspired John, we don't know better what we need than God does. And that's exactly what he's given us in this first chapter. He's given us a lot of theology up front. And get used to talking theology here, because John is a very theological book. John is very interested in the goings-on behind creation for why things take place the way that they do. Just remember, God is is telling you, you need this. If it is in his word, then you need it. But the reality is sometimes we want to jump at the idea of application. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me where I'm supposed to do it. Tell me when I'm supposed to do it. And, and And the thing about the gospel is this. Before God tells us what we must do, he tells us what he has done 
and what he is like. And that's what John does here. He does a very gospel-centered approach because he tells us who Jesus is before he tells us what we must do. And so this morning he tells us about Christ and especially he tells us how Jesus overturns our expectations. And so I want to just draw your attention to three ways that Jesus overturns our expectations this morning. Uh, The first irony in our passage is in verse 9. This is the irony. He was the light. He entered the dark. He was light. He entered the dark. So here, listen to verse 9. This is what it says. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John begins by calling Jesus the true light. You cannot begin to be surprised by Christ until you know who he really is. If you had met the person of Jesus, if you had just met Jesus on the street in Bethlehem or in Nazareth or somewhere walking around the hillsides of Judea, you would have just seen an ordinary man. You would have just seen somebody that looks like your neighbor. In reality, if we looked at him today, what would we see? We would probably see a dark-skinned man, shorter than us, probably, unless you're a smaller in stature. Uh, He probably would have had long, dark hair. There would have been curls in it, at least genetically. That would have been what Jews in Palestine looked like during this time. He would have been utterly unremarkable. He would have just been another guy walking around. Now, sometimes uh, misguided artists will draw images of Jesus. And sometimes in their misguidedness, they will draw a halo around the figure of Christ, or they will draw a glow coming off of him. So you know, this man is not like all the other men. And you wouldn't have seen anything like that, though, if you had seen Jesus. Isaiah tells us he had no form or beauty that we should be drawn to him. So we need to sort of dispense with this idea that the second that you would have seen Jesus, you would have just immediately seen something that drew you to him. Probably not. And yet John says that he was the true light. So we live in a world that's filled with light. We also live in a world where we take light for granted. I I was reading recently a book by Graham Moore. It's a dramatization of an actual historical event. The book's called The Last Days of Night. And in this book, it takes place during the 1800s, and it chronicles the invention of the light bulb. It chronicles this battle between Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison as they're sort of battling to create in a mass market way uh, light bulbs and make sure that electricity is everywhere. And it's interesting to put yourself into a book where most of New York City is not bathed in light, where only the very, very, very wealthiest part of town actually has electrical light. Everyone else is running off of gas. And one of the characters in the book sort of pauses at one point and and is kind of marveling about just how important the invention of the light bulb is. And uh, remember, this is a character writing in the late 1800s. Light bulbs, electricity. It seems likely that ours will be the last generation to gaze wide-eyed at something truly novel. That our kind will be the last to ever stare in disbelief at a man-made thing that could not possibly exist. And what it makes me think of is how much we take light for granted. Uh, I think it was about a month ago 
New York City lost their electricity for like six hours, and it was, it was madness. Uh, it was madness. They didn't even know what to do. They needed light so badly. Uh, and physical light is important. It's important to us. We need light. But here is something that is truly, that truly comes out, I think, in this passage. Jesus didn't come because physical light is important to us. No, that's not what is important at all here. He, he comes to give us something better than a thousand billboards uh, of, or floodlights. He, he comes not so that we can live in, uh, walk it through New York City at 2 a.m. and still have it look like daylight. No, Jesus comes for a far more important reason. He comes to give light to everyone. And it's a spiritual light. This is not a physical light. Do you ever consider the importance of when the lights go out, especially at night, how desperate we feel? And yet, are we that desperate when we realize in our own lives that we are living in spiritual darkness? Do you ever hit a moment where you say, I haven't heard from God all week. I have gone an entire week without even opening his word Do you ever freak out the way you freak out when the power goes out at 8 p.m.? We ought to. We ought to be that concerned. And and what John tells us, he says, Jesus, it says he gives light to everyone. So John is telling us that by Jesus coming into the world, it benefits all people in some sense. Even if they don't end up confessing Christ, even if they don't end up knowing God's saving grace, And he's not saying that everyone will. But he is also saying that if you have spiritual light, it doesn't come from in here. It comes from over there. It comes from him. It doesn't come from us. If you look at scripture and you believe it, you have no room to take credit for yourself. Because what do you have? The light that you have Any spiritual light that you enjoy, any spiritual light that that you have in your life is a reflected light that came from him first. Um, Sometimes uh, it takes some explanation to explain to children that the moon is not actually a source of light. There is no light that comes from the moon. All that the moon is is a reflection of the light off of the sun. And so at night, if you see the, the moon out bright and shining, you just need to understand There is no light actually coming from the moon. All that's happening is the light off of the sun is bouncing off of the moon and we're enjoying it. It appears that the moon is bright. It appears that the moon is shining, but it is actually not producing any light whatsoever. All that's happening is the light is bouncing off of this, off of it. But because of Christ, unbelievers in our orbit are surrounded constantly by a witness of the goodness of God. Every person you meet who knows Christ, if you are that person who knows Christ, they cast or you cast a reflected light on those around you. It is the goodness and grace of God that allows unbelievers to live in a world that Jesus has entered. And that's what John says. He says Jesus was coming into the world. And so here's the irony. The world is in darkness and the light doesn't just shine on it, but the light comes into it. The the world is, is filled with ignorance and sin and the knowledge and righteousness of God himself doesn't just reach out uh, from above or teach us from above. But the wisdom and the goodness and the righteousness of God actually came to live with us, which should amaze us. 
And it is not altogether expected. <laughs> so he, t- he takes our expectations and he turns those expectations over. Who could have expected that? Who could have expected that the light wouldn't just shine on us, but that he would come to live with us and be one of us? And yet that is exactly what John is getting across to us in these first verses of his gospel. The second irony in this passage is in verses 10 and 11. This is the irony. He knew the world. The world didn't know him. He knew the world. The world didn't know him. This is what John actually says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So first, John says, the world didn't know him. Uh, At this point, John is reflecting on the life and ministry of Jesus. He's looking back, and the reality is, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. Uh, Nobody knew the world better than the Son of God. He was its creator. He made every single nook and cranny. He made the rock at the bottom of the ocean. He made the anglerfish that we didn't discover until recently, a most terrifying creature. And he knew it, and he knew it well before anybody ever saw it with their own eyes. He was its creator, he was its maker, and he entered into it. But then John says this thing that ought to surprise us because he knew the world so well. It says the world didn't know him. And the implication here is they should have. He was was rejected. In a sense, John is already sort of telegraphing the end of the book. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be put to death by his very own family. And we see the irony right away, right? The, the creator enters, he is worthy of respect, and he gets no respect, no recognition from the world at large. Uh, I never watched this show, but I knew of it, and maybe some of you have watched it before, but there's a TV show that ran for several seasons called Undercover Boss. And uh, um, the concept, I guess, for the show is that a high-up executive in the company, somebody who's maybe the CEO of the company, uh, he leaves his ivory tower for a week and he goes to work as a lowly employee, just learning what it's like to sort of be a schlub, you know, be one of the average people on the ground. And I think it's interesting, you know, the, the CEO gets to see what does it look like, all the decisions that I've made, what does it look like to actually go through all of these? And the people don't know who he is, uh, at least they're not supposed to know. Uh, they're not supposed to have figured out that this is the CEO. Uh, and as I understand it, one of people's favorite things about Undercover Boss is, you know, he'll be working in the kitchen desperately and his coworker will uh, disrespect him. Right. Stop being so slow. You 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 pokey puppy, you know, make that hamburger faster. Get it served up. You're holding all of us back. And of course, the boss is sitting there and he's being disrespected. And if the person he was talking to knew who he was, he would very likely treat the boss very differently. Now, Jesus isn't the undercover boss because he doesn't enter the creation to know what it's like to experience something new. He doesn't uh, enter it for that reason. Jesus came to be one of us, to suffer for us, to bear our sins. And not so that he could have some exciting, enlightening experience, but because we needed the Savior to be one of us. 
We needed the sacrifice to be one of us. He needed to be a human being like you and me. That's why he came. He didn't come so that he could just find out for informational purposes what it's like to be a human being. But then the irony grows deeper because according to John, he didn't just come to the world, but he came to his own. He came to his own people and they didn't recognize him. Now, I grew up in a little town in Kansas, Stafford, Kansas. If you ever look it up on a map, it is a place that is so far out of the way that you would initially say, maybe I'll go visit Stafford, Kansas someday. And then after you look at the map long enough, you'll say, no, I don't think so. It's not close to any major highways. It is really out of the way. Um, But I knew that town so well. I grew up there. It was my home. Uh, It was one mile by one mile. Uh, We had like two Greasy Spoon restaurants. We had a pizza place. We had the County Museum, which was the pride of Stafford. Uh, We have had a school, thankfully. (laughs) I'm glad I wouldn't be here today. Um, And I knew that town like the back of my hand. I could ride my bike and I could go to anybody's house. Uh, If Aaron Walton called me, I could go visit Aaron Walton. I knew exactly where he lived. Uh, I knew how to get to my friend Matt Riley's house on my bicycle, riding over those brick-covered streets. Had every single corner of that town memorized. If you asked me where Sybil Mortimer lived, I could tell you where she lived. If you asked me where Dallas Minks lived, I could point you to his house. Everybody in my class, in fact, my graduating class had 16 people in it. So if you you graduated from a class with like hundreds, just flip that around. Maybe some of you can relate. Tell me stories afterwards about how small your graduating class was. Um, But I knew that town so well. And not too long ago, I went back to Stafford and I drove around the town and I looked around and I thought this place is smaller than I remember. And uh, and I remember going into the gas station and the person working there did not know who I was. And, you know, this is a town that occupies nostalgia for me. I'll probably always look back on it with fondness. I feel like this is my town. I know everything about it. And yet nobody here knows me anymore. Nobody here, I, they don't resonate with me. They, they don't know me. And even though I felt like I knew that place so well. And that's to be expected, I think, as time goes on. But what would you think if I went to the house of my own family walked up to the door, knocked on it triumphantly, and then my own mother answered the door, blank-faced, wondering who I was and why I was there. That would not be expected. That's what happens to Jesus. He comes to his own family. He knocks on his own door. And they look at him like, what do you want? Get in line like everybody else. See, John is showing us the irony here. He, he gave his people everything. He was the one who led them through the desert, according to Paul. Uh, he is the one who created the land that they lived in. Uh, he, he created the waterways. He crafted the hills. He crafted the trees. Uh, all of the, the things that they have used to build these edifices. He gave them everything. He gave them the whole history of Israel. He gave gave them the kingship. He spoke to them through the prophets. Everything they had came from him. This was his place. And yet, what does John say? He says they were ungrateful. They were blind. They didn't know who he was. They're enjoying all of these benefits that come from him. And they have no idea who he is. Calvin says that they're like a person drinking from a stream. And they do not care where it comes from. 
No gratitude, no love, no remembrance, no recognition. He made the world, and the world didn't know him. He made his family, and his family looked at him like he was a stranger and like he was crazy. And that's the crazy part about the incarnation. You know, the boss goes undercover. The maker enters his creation. The giver of all becomes ignored by all. Irony upon irony. And the truth is it was all by design. It was intentional. If you had rewound the clock back before creation, if it were even possible, you would witness an agreement between the Father and the Son, a covenant. We call it the covenant of redemption. And this agreement, and in this agreement, the Father and the Son agreed together exactly that this is the way it was going to always be. Um, Nothing in Christ's life was plan B. Everything was always plan A. It was always the way that it was planned to be. That he would make the world, that he would enter the world, that he would be rejected by the world. And there's a reason for this. And the reason for it is actually our third point this morning. It's the third irony of our passage. And it's in verses 12 and 13. And it's this. They were dead. And he made them live. Here's what the verse says. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I just said that it has always been plan A. And, and that's absolutely true. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was, he was treated like a stranger, like a blasphemer, like a villain, even though he was the rescuer. But here is why. If you want to know what all of those other things we're aiming at, what the focus is, why do this at all, this is the answer so that dead people could be brought to life. And that's the last irony in our passage. Because notice the order. See, see how John does this. He says, he says Jesus' own people didn't receive him. And then the very next word is, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name. So in other words, Jesus was rejected by his own, but he wasn't rejected by everyone. He, he, he's presented to the world and those in authority, those who were in the intelligentsia, those who were the, in the highest rungs of society, they rejected him. But then some people did receive him. And how did they receive him? The passage is very simple. It says they believed in his name. And I want you to know this morning that being a Christian is as easy as believing in the name of Jesus. Believing that he is who he said he was. Believing that you can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself. And Jesus can and Jesus will. It is possible for us to overcomplicate what it is to be a Christian. It is possible for us to overcomplicate how to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is about trusting in Jesus. Um, What did the apostles tell the Philippian jailer? The Philippian jailer comes to them in his desperation. He's at the end of his rope. His life is almost over, he thinks. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And then they don't tell him. They don't tell him to do anything except believe in the Lord Jesus. That's all they tell him. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
Now, does that mean that's the sum total of the Christian life? Does that mean believing in Jesus is where it begins and where it ends? No, not at all. There's more to the Christian life. There's more. Uh, you're, we're meant to grow. We're meant to, to, uh, to learn more. We're meant to, to do more things. But if you're asking the question, what must I do to be saved? There must be only one answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It may be you have noticed that I have a very common sermon application. It might be, I think it's the most common sermon application that I have, which is this, believe in Jesus. I have a lot of sermons. I was looking back through some of my archives not too, re- not too long ago, and I was noticing there's a common thread there. Believe in Jesus is oftentimes my application. And I sort of got self-reflective for a moment. I thought, is this, a, is this bad preaching? <laughs> is it bad preaching to always end by saying, believe in Jesus? And as I thought about it, I think that it is not. Because what is preaching but telling you the thing that you need to hear most that you forget the most? Believe in the Lord Jesus. I would just say, remember what you need most. It is to keep believing. To keep believing. See, God has things he he calls us to. He has plans for us as his disciples. He doesn't just want us to live on milk for the rest of our lives like babies. But the first step that John highlights here is believe. And if you do believe, tell somebody, share it with somebody. Don't keep it to yourself. If you really believe, in my experience, it is very difficult not to tell someone. It is very difficult to keep it to yourself. It's like John Newton said, once God got a hold of his heart, what does he say? How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. When you've got grace and it is precious to you and you now have it and you didn't have it before, it is, it's like a volcano erupting. You've got to do it. You've got to say it. And what does John say happens to us when we receive him? When we believe in his name, it says he gives us the right to become children of God. So what he's talking about here is the doctrine of adoption. See, he brings us into his family, just like Israel was God's son. Now he takes us and he makes us his son, too. When we believe in Christ, we are adopted as his own child. And and I would just say this in terms of application Adoption as a practice is baked into the Christian faith. Um, Adoption is not an added on concept that someone just decided to tack on because, well, it's a good practice to, to adopt children. And so we should find a way to retrofit it and make it something that's a part of who we are. No, this is intrinsic to us. Think about this. Adoption is when we take a child that didn't come from our own body. And we look at him or we look at her and we say, mine, I will care for you. I will treat you like my own child. And you won't just be treated like my child, but you will really really become my child. God doesn't play make-believe when he says, you are my child when you put your faith in me. And when you adopt a child, this is not make-believe that this is your child. This really does become your child. There are very few things that Christians can do that more profoundly reflect the love of the Father for wayward children than when we take a little one who needs a home and we give them our own home and make them our family. Because our God is an adopting God. He takes those who weren't his and he makes them his. 
He doesn't make believe that they're his. He really makes them his. Before we get away from this, there is an elephant in the room of John's thought, and and that's the how. Uh, We were part of the crowd that didn't receive him. What separates us from the rest of them? Why didn't we reject him too? Why did we believe on his name, but our friend or our neighbor didn't? And John's answer is simple. He did something here. God did something. He changed our hearts. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says that believers were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he, he really is telling us that, that God flipped the switch, as it were, inside of us. And he changed us from being a God-rejecting person to a God-receiving person. From being a God-hating person to being a God-loving person. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about another doctrine. He's talking to us about the doctrine of regeneration. That's what we call it, if you want to use the, uh, fancy theological language. Or he's talking about the new birth. Um, he's saying we believed because we were regenerated. See, first we didn't believe, that we didn't want to believe, we had no interest in believing. But then the text says we were born. What made us to be born? Well, he goes through and rules out the bad answers. He, it, wasn't, it wasn't blood. In other words, we didn't inherit it from our family. It wasn't the will of the flesh. There is nothing in you that would ever want God. And it wasn't the will of man that gave us new birth. So just like, just like God is an adopting God, our God is a regenerating God. John wants us to know it here this morning. He says, he says you didn't make yourself to be born. You had no more control over your second birth than you had over your first birth. And if you think that you caused yourself to be born again by believing, John says, you've got it all backwards. You believed because you were born again. And you you didn't make that happen. What does he say? He says, it wasn't you. It wasn't your will. It wasn't something about you that was just so keen and receptive and you saw the thing that no one else saw. He says, no, no, no. You were born of God. And then you believed. And that's, that's why it happened. And that's, that's where it came from. God willed you to be regenerated. And because of that, he sent his spirit. He changed your heart. You set your gaze on Christ. And you said, this is all my hope and peace Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And John is is crystal clear. Those who receive and believe on Jesus have been rescued from life to death. It is perhaps the greatest irony of them all. To see a person whose heart is dead in trespasses and sin be made alive in Jesus Christ. We should marvel every time we hear about someone coming to Jesus. It is an absolute miracle every time it happens. So what is John painting for us here? He's painting a picture of the unexpectedness of the Savior. Christ was rejected, but he was received by some. And, and today Christ is still rejected. We know that. But here is the beautiful news that we need. He is still received. I think sometimes we are far too pessimistic about people's willingness to hear the gospel. And we are far too, 
to low in our expectation that human beings are going to want to hear what Jesus has to say to them. Um, one of the things that I have noticed, at least, if you go to a college campus and you walk up to somebody and you say, hey, let's talk about God, they actually want to. That's not the picture in our minds. The picture in our minds is everybody's a secularist. Everybody hates Christianity. Everybody hates Jesus. And on one level, that's true. But on the other hand, it is shocking how receptive people are to talking about the gospel. It is shocking. It's surprising. And I want you to know this. If you believed on Christ's name, John wants you to know that you didn't believe in him because you're great or smart or wise. You believed in him because he came in and he changed your heart and he gave you new birth. And because he changed your heart, you believed in him and you received him and you became his child. And without that new birth, without him waking your heart up, you never, ever, ever would have recognized him. You never would have loved him. You never would have believed in him. You would have been like Israel. What did Israel do? They rejected him. And you would have been just like them. Now, our catechism tells us why we were created. It says we were created to glorify God and enjoy him. And this morning, you know how you can do that? Everyone in this room can glorify God. If you're a believer, then acknowledge what he's done for you and thank him for the new birth. Give him glory for you believing. Don't keep it for yourself. Don't say, no, no, no. I have something in me that's so great that I was able to see what everybody else missed. And that's why I believe. Don't do that. You're stealing God's glory when you tell your story that way. Because God has actually done something and he demands the glory for that. And if you aren't a believer, or if if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then you can do it right now. You can glorify God by putting your faith in Jesus. Because the thing that we put our trust in, the thing that we love, is the thing that we actually give glory to. So when I say, I love my truck, or I love my car, and, and I tell people about it, I'm always talking about it, and I put my faith in it to take me across the country, I'm giving glory to my car. I'm giving glory to this thing that I trust in and that I love and that I need. But I want you to know there's nothing, there's no greater way to give glory to God than to trust him and then to tell someone else about it. And do you know what you'll find when you do that? You'll find his great love. Because Paul tells us, and I close with these words from Paul, he says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son into the world. The very light of the world entered our world, and he wasn't loved, he wasn't received, he wasn't treated the way he should have been. And yet he did it for us. He did it to carry the penalty for our sin and to share his righteousness with us, but he also did it to give us new life even though we didn't deserve it. Would you make us a people who glorify you, both by believing on your name and also by giving you all the credit for the new birth that we enjoy? We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.